It's episode 207 of the Cincinnati and Dayton Sports Podcast. And this episode, we talk about the free agent moves made by the Cincinnati Bengals. We then move on to the OHSAA state champs for ice hockey, girls, and boys basketball. Next, we talk about the Cincinnati Reds in spring training as opening day is next week. And finally, it's a March Madness update. If you want local sports, you're not tuning in to Dayton Radio. You're tuning in to the Cincinnati and Dayton Sports Podcast, episode 207. Welcome to the Cincinnati and Dayton Sports Podcast with Lee W. Mowen. This is a weekly audio podcast that covers all sports in Dayton and Cincinnati, Ohio, and covers areas from Norfolk, Kentucky and the Ohio River up to Lima and Allen County, from Richmond, Indiana and the surrounding Whitewater Valley region to Madison County and surrounding areas. If you want local sports, this is your source. To find your favorite way of listening to this podcast, as well as visiting the Tee Public and Redbubble shops and find the latest episodes, please visit sindaypod.com. This opening theme was created with the Splash app. It's time for another episode with your host, Lee W. Mowen. Hey, I'm only a couple days late now instead of three weeks. Impressive. I should put that on my resume. Anyway, welcome back to the Cincinnati Dayton Sports Podcast. Hopefully your week has gone well. It's nice to have you back listening to local sports. And we're starting things off with the Cincinnati Bengals in free agency. Now, free agency, of course, a time to pick up needs before the draft Maybe get rid of a few players you don't need anymore. Maybe they're going against the cap too much where you can sign younger players or cheaper players. It's a fun time of football without actually having football in front of our faces. So the Cincinnati Bengals, as you might know, last year wasn't a great year. Joe Burrow showed why he was worthy of the number one pick, of course. But then the Bengals showed themselves still needing to work on a few things. And by golly, did the Bengals work on a few things? If you're a Bengals fan, what's the number one thing you wanted to work on this offseason? I can probably put a small amount of money on the fact that you probably said offensive line. And that's what I believe in, too. Now, the Bengals have made an offensive line change actually too and we'll talk about that as we look through the entire free agent signing up to this point march 26th for the cincinnati Bengals. now if you've been following along free agency you know that most of these signings have focused on the defensive end which is fine i mean defense need a little bit of tweaking too but if you're looking for a lot of free agent signings for the offensive line uh, you might be disappointed, which is okay. Again, there's the draft, and the Bengals could probably look for a youthful core to add to the line, but 
Here's what the Bengals have done so far. We'll talk about the released players who will not be in Cincinnati for the start of training camp. And this is probably the biggest one that uh, Cincinnati itself went ballistic over in a good way. Part of the release player core, offensive tackle Bobby Hart. Former New York Giants. It's safe to say I didn't see one single comment that was said about Bobby Hart being cut. And I don't like seeing players lose their jobs, but at the same time, I think this was a a need for Cincinnati. I honestly think that the Bengals have made a very big splash just with that alone on the offensive line. There is an addition, but we'll talk about that later. Now, there's some people saying that Bobby Hart was homophobic. I never saw those tweets, so I can't really comment either way. It's a shame if he did, but Bobby Hart is gone. There's a couple more Bengals that are gone. Probably one that makes the Bengals fans sad. Geno Atkins, defensive tackle. Now, Geno Atkins, great career in Cincinnati. Last year, not too great. I think he had maybe one sack with his shoulder issues. Didn't play that much. But you know what? Geno Atkins definitely gave it all to Cincinnati, and I thank Gino for his time with the Bengals. Also, center B.J. Finney. Who's that? Oh, yeah, that's the trade that the Bengals made. I think he was brought in with the Carlos Dunlap trade. He came in right after that. I don't think he saw a single game on Sunday, though. Not a one. So he got released, and I think the Pittsburgh Steelers picked him back up. So those are your released players. Your traded players, almost released, but in the 11th hour, the Bengals got a call for a trade. Quarterback Ryan Finley. Now, outside the Monday night football game against Pittsburgh, where he delivered a win, his career in Cincinnati, not great. You can make the argument he was part of that chain that got the ball rolling, where... The Bengals were able to scoop up Joe Burrow with the number one pick in the draft a couple years back. But, hey, Ryan Finley did give us a Monday Night Football win against the Pittsburgh Steelers, which, you know, was great. It's probably one that, you know, we didn't expect. I didn't expect it, but, hey, Finley really did a great job. I think he only threw for, what was it, 170-some yards? But at the same time, you know, Bengals got the win. Defense looks sharp. The Bengals, I feel like they can be a great team. And that's not me just being, you know, a Cincinnati fan and a Southwest Ohio native saying that. No, I honestly think the Bengals have a chance to be decent. But, you know, will they? I don't know. Now let's get to the re-signed players. These were Bengals that will be back in Cincinnati unless something happens between now and August, which is very possible. We'll start off with Clark Harris getting a one-year deal valued at 1.2 mil. You got cornerback Jalen Davis one year at 920,000. Quarterback Brandon Allen, who is sure to be the backup to Joe Burrow, one year, one and a half mil. You got safety Brandon Wilson, two years at about four and a quarter 
million. Actually, that'd be four and an eighth million. Excuse me. Cornerback Tony Brown signed for $920,000 for one year. Samaji P. Ryan, two years, $3.3 million. Wide receiver Mike Thomas, probably coming as the WR5 at one year and just a little over a million. Kevin Huber signed a one-year deal for about 1.7 mil. And Quinton Spain was the latest Bengal to get re-signed, the guard that was cut from Buffalo. He did enough in his nine games with Cincinnati to warrant another year, which is great. I like that signing. I don't remember if Spain was on the field when Washington got to Burrow and ended his season. I don't think he was. I think it was Michael Jordan, which was a big talking point for a long time. And I'm pretty sure Hart was on the field. I'm not entirely sure the line that was on the field. But I like Quentin Spain. Big body on the line. And definitely a nice pickup. Now, free agent signings. These are players that weren't with Cincinnati. That will be with Cincinnati. Most of these are on the defensive end. The lightest one is a one-year deal for former Atlanta Falcons safety Ricardo Allen. Also former New York Giant, New Orleans Saint, Eli Apple, a cornerback. One-year deal with Cincinnati. Here are the contracts. The first one, of course, defensive end Trey Hendrickson of Formerly the New Orleans Saints, not out of the New Orleans Saints. Well, technically he's out of there, but, you know. Four years, $60 million contract with $16 million fully guaranteed at the signing. Of course, you got cornerbacks Mike Hilton from the Pittsburgh Steelers. Four years for 24 mil with $6 million fully guaranteed. And from the Dallas Cowboys, cornerback Jadobi Awuzi. Three years, 21 and three quarters million with seven and a half million fully guaranteed at signing. Uh, Larry uh, Gunjabai, formerly of the Cleveland Browns, defensive tackle, one year, 6.2 million. He was excited to come to Cincinnati. And this is one that fans really wanted. Offensive tackle Riley Reef from the Minnesota Vikings, one year, seven and a half million with a void year attached. Now, again, you could be disappointed that there's not more offensive line transactions, which I'm a little bit, but if you look at the defensive side, there's a change in the guard, if you will. So defensive coordinator Amaruno doesn't really have any excuse this year. If they falter, it's on him, and he's probably out the door before the 2022 season. I say probably. I don't make the rules. I just commentate on them. So... On the defensive end, that sounds really good. I mean, and there was a Cincinnati Inquirer article saying that once the cornerbacks got into town, they started a group chat to start to gel, which is nice. Now, the big thing is, of course, injury bug, because you remember the last offseason, the Bengals did make a splash in signings. Just not a lot of them played because, oh yeah, injuries. So hopefully they'll be back for next year. But next year, I mean 2021. So, definitely, there's still more to be done. There's a second wave of free agency. So, once once those moves are added, we'll talk about them here on the podcast. So, what do you think of the Cincinnati Bengals free agent moves? 
I like him. I'm a little disappointed that more isn't enforced on the offensive line. But then again, there's the draft, which let's take a look at the draft projection, shall we? I still think the Bengals will be better service with Penny Sewell. There's an article I saw that mentioned, oh, well, you know, Joe Burrow should try to get Javar Chase to Cincinnati. So from CBS Sports, this is the 2021 NFL prospect rankings. As of March 26. So right now. Kyle Pitts is listed as the. Fifth best pick. That's where the Bengals are picking. Penny Sewell. Moved up to fourth. Trevor Lawrence. He'll probably be the number one pick. They have Zach Wilson as the number two pick. On CBS Sports. Jamar Chase. For LSU. That's Jamar Chase. I think I said JaVale Chase. I apologize, but Jamar Chase, LSU wide receiver, which the Bengals were on the Galladay shopping spree, but Galladay eventually picked up a very hefty contract with the New York Giants, which Galladay, what I thought would have been a nice fit in the offense, but not the end of the world. You can either look for a wide receiver that'll give you a big splash up front or, you know, free agency still isn't over. So let's see how that works. So about the draft, this is a little bit older article, a couple weeks old, but the Bengals still with the number five pick in the draft, of course, and there's a lot of people saying Penny Sewell should be the guy to come to Cincinnati. This is from my good friend Michael LaPlaca, formerly of University of Dayton Athletics Department, now the digital media specialist with the Cincinnati Bengals. There's a lot of people clamoring on the fact that the offensive tackle from Oregon, the best offensive tackle in this draft class should help. Yeah. I think Sewell's, you know, addition to the line would be a wonderful thing of protecting Joe Burrow. Actually, Daniel Jeremiah of NFL.com says that Kyle Pitts, yes, is an attractive option, but the Bengals need to make protecting Joe Burrow the priority. Mel Kuyper Jr. of ESPN said, the 2019 Outland Trophy winner has everything teams won in a franchise left tackle. Even though he didn't play last season, his tape for the previous two years is enough to make him the top tackle in the class. Todd McShay of the same platform, ESPN.com, said, it's a game-changing tackle. So the Pete Prisco's mock draft for the first 10 picks still have Sewell dropping to Cincinnati, whereas right now Trevor Lawrence still the top pick. And Prisco mentions that Zach Wilson from BYU will be picked over Justin Fields of that team in Columbus. Jamar Chase, the wide receiver from LSU, picked by the Dolphins. Then you got cornerback Patrick Certain, the second of Alabama. There's Sewell at five for Cincinnati from Oregon. Then you have another offensive lineman, Christian Darishaw from Virginia Tech going to Philadelphia. Devonta Smith, the wide receiver of Alabama, picked by the Lions. There's Justin Fields, the quarterback to Carolina. 
Micah Parsons, the linebacker from Penn State going to Denver. Caleb Farley for the Dallas Cowboys, the cornerback from Virginia Tech. Now, of course, this is about a month ago, but still mentioning how Sewell will help protect Joe Burrow. Big physical trench dominator, a plug-and-play left tackle who excels both as a pass protector and as a run blocker. That's from Denny Kelly of The Ringer. So, my big worry is, yeah, we draft Sewell. I worry about that curse that's floating around. I mean, Burrow was the top pick previous season. Yes, I know, the offensive line didn't really do him any favors. As, what was he, the third highest quarterback to get rushed and hit in the NFL? before he went down with his season-ending injury. that That's my pick. I still say get Sewell for your offensive line. And, you know, but there are some people that's clamoring from Jamar Chase of LSU, a wide receiver to help out the offense with T. Higgins, Tyler Boyd, Mike Thomas. The Burrow and Chase connection reunites in Cincinnati from Chris Chapasso of CBS Sports. The Athletics said drafting Chase not only addresses the only real hole we saw in Joe Burrow's game as a rookie, the deep ball, it also reunites the Bengals quarterback with his favorite target from 2019, which I thought was Justin Jefferson, but never mind, when he turned in the greatest single-season performance in college football history. Anthony Teresa, pro football focus, agrees with Chase's physicality and release package are NFL-ready, and those two strengths equated to massive success against press coverage. So, of course, the draft is uh, about another month away or so. However, it's not too late to start thinking about it. I still want Penny Sewell to protect Joe Burrow. I want our cornerback, quarterback, our cornerstone quarterback even, to be protected and not have another season-ending injury. As I think I can only deal with that once in my lifetime. And there you have it. The updates to the Cincinnati Bengals. I got my information from CincyJungle.com talking about the additions and subtractions made by Cincinnati. And we have reached the end of winter, both in high school sports and weather, hopefully. Let's knock on wood. That's me knocking on wood in case it didn't get picked up by the mic. Anyway, ice hockey and basketball state champs have all been crowned. And we'll start off with ice hockey to let you know how the Columbus District went and how the state championship went. Spoilers, St. Ignatius didn't get to the Frozen Four. I know. That's surprising. So let's talk about the Columbus District. If you're wondering why we talk about the Columbus District in ice hockey, well, it's because Cincinnati and Dayton don't have enough teams to form their own district. Plus, it'd be a little weird with five total districts. So the local schools get lumped in with the Columbus ice hockey schools. So the overall number one seed was St. Charles and the Cardinals. They're a private institution in Columbus. And... Let's look through. I think your highest local seed were the Talawanda Brave, the overall number four seed. And another great run by head coach Zach Sen's Brave 
ice hockey squad. Yes, they are called the Brave, formerly the Braves. Remember when Talawanda voted to get rid of all Native American references? Well, that's why. It's the Brave. I've heard rumors, not anything substantial, but I've heard rumors that there's talks about maybe Talawanda looking at another mascot, maybe the Titans. You know, that'd be a pretty cool one. Um, I don't think you'd see the Red Hawks just because of the fact uh, there's another school in Oxford that has Red Hawks. What are they called? Oh, yeah, Miami U. Although, I don't know. Maybe Miami U would be flattered by it. I don't know. But Talawanda was your highest seed in the Columbus district bracket from the Cincinnati Dayton area. And a good reason. This is a very strong high school squad. You know, from what I've seen past few years, Talawanda doesn't, you know, restructure or, you know, renovate. They just reload and they come back at you, you know, every single year. So definitely it's nice to see that success, especially with local hockey, no matter what the team. So let's start with the first round. If you didn't get a top eight seed in the Columbus district, you'd have to play the first weekend and then possibly take on the highest seeds, which actually by possibility means that's what you would do. The top eight seeds got to buy. I mentioned St. Charles, the overall number one seed, and then Talawanda, the fourth seed. You had Olin Tangi Orange, the fifth seed in the Northern Columbus quadrant. You also have Worthington Kilbourne. They were the 20th seed, but because there was schools that didn't have hockey teams this year, like Centerville, there had to be a little shuffling going around. So the Wolves got a bye as well. You had number seven, Olin Tangi Berlin. You had number two, Upper Arlington. You also had number three, Olin Tangi Liberty. And number six, Archbishop Bowler. In the immediate Cincinnati area, the top team in the Queen City. Remember, Talawanda's in Oxford, and that's kind of in the middle of Dayton, Cincinnati. Well, technically that's Middletown, but you get what I'm saying. So let's start with the first weekend, which happened February 19th, 2021. We start with the number 23 Sycamore A's, a tough year for Sycamore. And they fall to the 12th seed of New Albany Eagles, 8-1. to Thomas Worthington had the 8th seed, and they took on number 22 St. Francis de Sales out of Columbus. And the Cardinals flew over the Stallions, 11-1. to And Dublin Jerome had the 9th seed. They took on their brother school in Dublin, Sciota, the 25th seed Irish. And it was Celtics putting the band hammer down on Sciota, 14-1. Moving on further down the bracket, the 10th-seeded St. Xavier Bombers. They got a Cincinnati foe in the 21st-seeded Mason Comets. And it was St. X all the way, 8-0, to move on to take on Olentangy Orange. Further down the bracket, you had the 24th-seeded Troy Trojans, led by Rick Zabo and assistant coach J.D. Zabo, who broadcast the games on Facebook Live for the Trojans. And it was the 11th seed of Dublin Kaufman Rocks getting the best of the Trojans, 9-1. to We had the 18th seed at Archbishop Alter Knights squaring off with the 19th seed at Columbus Academy Vikings. And the Knights fell just short of the Vikes. 4-3 Columbus Academy, your final in that game. Our first overtime game in the Columbus District featured the 16th seed of Beaver Creek Beavers, very strong, 
Beaver Creek Beaver squad. Taking on number 13, Olin Tangi and the Braves. And it was Olin Tangi edging out Creek 3-2 in the first overtime. And the last one in the first round features the 14-seeded Springboro Panthers taking on 15-seeded Bishop Watterson. And the Eagles of Bishop Watterson flew over the Panthers 4-1 to end Springboro's season. In the second round, this is where the top eight seeds got their first taste of hockey for the playoffs. It was the top seed St. Charles Cardinals knocking off New Albany 5-1. Thomas Worthington, by beating St. Francis Sales, got a date with Dublin Jerome. And the Cardinals picked up another win, a strong win over nine-seeded Celtics of Dublin Jerome. 5-1, Thomas Worthington advanced. You had number five, Olentangy Orange. Knocking down the Bombers, the fifth-seeded Pioneers, 7-1 winners. And then here's the Brave of Talawanda, defeating Worthington Kilborn, 11-1. Olentangy Berlin edged off Dublin Kaufman, the seventh-seeded Bears, 1-2-1. Then you had the second-seed Upper Arlington Golden Bears. You might remember them last year for having an undefeated season, then being knocked out of the Columbus District playoffs by New Albany. And the Golden Bears shut out the Vikings, 4-0. Olentangy Liberty, the third-seeded Patriots, they defeated their brother's school in Olentangy, the 13-seeded Braves, 8-2. And Archbishop Muller got the playoffs on the positive bounce by shutting out Bishop Watterson, 9-0. Moving on towards the quarterfinals, you had St. Charles, the top seed, shutting out Thomas Worthington. Well, if you had the Cardinals, you would have won because both schools are Cardinals, but St. Charles was the victor, 3-0. Olentangy Orange fell to Oxford Talawanda, 6-4, as the Brave moved on to the semis. You had Olentangy Berlin falling just short of Upper Arlington, the Golden Bears beating the Bears, 2-0, and Olentangy Liberty edging off Muller, 2-1. Semis look like this, St. Charles... Shut out Talawanda 2-0 to set up the top part of the championship bracket. And then you had Upper Arlington in another overtime affair, getting by Olentangy Liberty 3-2. Who would move on to the Frozen Four? Well, the Upper Arlington Golden Bears, the second seed, edge off number one St. Charles? The answer is yes. 2-1, Upper Arlington, your final. And that advanced the Golden Bears to the Frozen Four. Now we look at the state tournament, not held at Nationwide Arena this year. It was held at the Ice House, which is in the same building. But Upper Arlington fell in their first Frozen Four game to Lakewood St. Edward, 3 to nothing. On the other side of the bracket, Walsh Jesuit, they got to the Frozen Four. It's a team that we get to see in the Dayton area once once a year for the last two years. The Warriors fell short. I almost thought it was the Cavaliers for some reason. Don't know why. Warriors fell short to St. Francis the Sales of Toledo, 7-2. And your championship game to hoist the state title, it would be St. Edward falling short of Toledo St. Francis the Sales, 2-1. In fact, I remember an update after two periods. St. Francis the Sales was up two to nothing. So St. Francis Sales brings home a state title in ice hockey for the Toledo area. And that still 
means that there's only one team from not Toledo or Cleveland or up north that has brought home a state title in ice hockey. And that would be the Centerville Elks back in the 70s. It's been a while. But congrats go out to, believe, the Knights of St. Francis de Sales in Toledo for their ice hockey title. Now we move on to girls basketball. You might remember from that last episode before I took a three-week involuntary break as UD Arena welcomed in the state semis and the championship games for both girls and boys basketball. Needless to say, it was a very busy weekend at the University of Dayton Arena. Let's talk about the tournament. Won't cover the entire thing. There's a lot to cover. But let me tell you, it was great to have it at UD Arena. And for UD to actually have basketball, not first four, I mean, yeah, you still don't get like the $23 million that comes into Montgomery County from all the people that come into town. But at the same time, you get to host the championships in state basketball. What's better than that? So let's talk about Division Four first and girls basketball. The Fort Loramie Redskins, how good of a season did they have? Oh, I don't know. They finished 29-1. and I say that's pretty good. How did it finish for Fort Loramie? Well, in the semis, Fort Loramie defeated Convoy Crestview by a score of 66-24 and then defeated McDonald 60-26 to to hoist the Division Four state title trophy. Congrats go out to the girls basketball team of Fort Loramie for the championship. Let's look at that box score for Fort Loramie's win over McDonald. As you had Fort Loramie led with 13 points, Dana Rose, Kenzie Holscher with 12 points. In fact, from all the Redskins that appeared, it looks like all but three scored. This is a team that shot 22 of 39, which percentage-wise, that's about 56%, low over 56%. Three-point-wise, four or six for you know, 66.7%. Three throws, same percentage, 12 of 18. And the Redskins didn't shoot their first three throws until the third quarter, where they went three of seven in the third, but nine of 11 in the fourth. Rebound-wise, where is that on here? 28 rebounds to McDonald's 20. So the Redskins out-rebounded their opponent. And the leading scorer for McDonald was Molly Howard's 10 points. And there was only four players for McDonald that scored. It looked like all but two McDonald players got to see the game. And only four scored. So that's a heck of a job before Lormie. If you want to go, it's ohsaa.org. You go pick your sport. It's got play-by-play and everything and box scores of all the quarters, which is pretty neat. But that is your final Fort Lormie, the Division Four girls basketball state title winners. Division Three, the local team would have been the Purcell Marion Cavaliers, a wonderful season for the GCL co-ed Cavaliers. However, in the semis, they fell short to Berlin Highland, 
you might know Berlin Highland for hosting the Classic in the Country Tournament, which is the equivalent of flying to the hoop for girls basketball, only in Northeast Ohio, by a score of 47-40. to So the Cavaliers fell just a game short of the championship. And while, yes, Ottawa Glandorf is north of Lima, we talk about the Titans quite often. They would be the second local team in Division Three. The Titans defeated Apple Creek Wayndale 46-36, but fell short to Berlin Highland 45-25, giving Berlin Highland the D3 Girls Basketball State title. Division Two. Just one local team would be the Carroll Patriots, also of the GCL co-ed division. And Carroll fell short in the first game to Napoleon, 46-43, ending the Patriots season at 20-5. Napoleon would end up winning the D2 state title game as they took down MacArthur, Vinton County, 76-44. You know, Vinton County is the only school district in Ohio that I know about that is a county district. Because, you know, you have like your districts and like in Preble County, you have five school districts, technically six, because the students in College Corner could go to the school in Indiana. But there you go. A little bit of knowledge for you, I guess. And Division One to wrap up girls basketball, you had one local team. And this was a team led by a doctor, Dr. Scott Rogers. And this is a team that is very well regarded in girls' basketball hoops. In fact, what did I see from Mike Dyer? Ranked third by Max Preps in the entire United States? Yeah. This Mount Notre Dame team, you can say, really good. But they had a handful in the championship game. More on that in a second. The semifinal game, Mount Notre Dame took down Toledo Notre Dame Academy. 59 to 50, and the championship game went to the Cincinnati team, 57 55, edging out Newark by two points and handing Newark just their second loss. Let's look at the box score, shall we? Wait for it to load. Not a lot of players on the box, in fact, just seven for both teams. Whereas Division 4 had a lot of players checked in, but your leading scorer, K.K. Bransford, with 21 points, 8 rebounds, 10 assists for a double-double, played the entire game. So that's your leading scorer for both teams. Newark had 3 hit double digits in points. Layla Felia was the only other Mount Notre Dame player to hit double-digit points with 11. 3 rebounds, a block, and a steal also played the entire 40 minutes as well. Your leading scorer for Newark would be Gwen Stair, 19 points. Maddie Vichicki with 18 points. Emma Shoemate with 12. Whereas Newark got only three points off the bench, Mount Notre Dame got 18. So that definitely helped out the Cincinnati team. So another state title for Mount Notre Dame. This Mount Notre Dame team shot 35.5% for the game. And three-pointers shot 385 Three throws, 61.5% for Mount Notre Dame. Compare that to Newark, who shot 66.7% three-throw-wise. Three-pointers, just a little bit better, 39.1%. Whereas Mount Notre Dame only made 5 of 13. Newark made 9 of 23. And shooting-wise... 
a little bit less on the total field goal package, 35.2%. Close game. Definitely a hard-fought win for Mount Notre Dame against Newark. And that's your girls' basketball state title winners as we head over to boys' basketball. There's two local teams that have won state title games, and I can't wait to tell you about those as soon as we find out where the brackets are on this. That's a little bit different compared to what the girls' basketball looked like. Would it be... Or is it... Why is it not uniform? Or it's just the same place and you find it there. It's not. That's that's insane. Let's try to... Let's try this. If it's not, then I'll just pause and you'll hear from me afterwards. Oh, never mind. The link was in here as well. So let's start with Division 4. The state and regional tournament bracket looked like this. No box scores on this. Shame. We'll start with the state semifinals from up north in Shelby County. The Bakken's Trojans went 25-3 and before the semifinals. And their first opponent was Richmond Heights. And it was the Trojans edging out Richmond Heights 44-40 to set up their place in the championship game. On the other side, Columbus Grove, again, North Alima, but we talk about them a little bit. Bulldogs, which, by the way, Columbus Grove, not near Columbus. I know, right? Columbus Grove took down New Boston Glenwood, 58-53. And no, I don't have to tell you, New Boston is not near Boston, Massachusetts. That would be silly. For the championship game, you had two local teams squaring off. The Trojans of Bakken's and the Bulldogs of Columbus Grove. And it was Bakken's taking down the Bulldogs. Trojans 60, Columbus Grove 44. That is a very nice win for Bakken's. First ever boys basketball state title for BHS. If you wonder why we don't talk about Bakken's during football season, well, it's a little hard to talk about Bakken's having football when they don't have the sport. So there you go. But great win for Bakken's and very excited to see a local team bring home another state title game. Let's look at Division 3. Your local team, Ottawa Glandorf again and Cincinnati Taft. We'll start with the Taft Senators from Cincinnati. First time in a while that Taft made it this far. Their path took them through Anna with an overtime win over the Rockets. A beating down of Springfield Shawnee, a team that looked very balanced and a lot of fun to watch against their playoff win against Dixie. Taft won that regional final game 63-39. So that set up a date in the state semifinal at UD Arena against Worthington Christian from the Columbus area. And Taft fell by two points, 47-45. Tough way to go out for the Senators but Worthington Christian would head to the state final. On the other side, Ottawa Glandar fell short by six points to Cleveland Heights Lutheran East, which I keep seeing, I kept seeing Twitter users call it Lou. It's like, what is Lou? Stop saying it Lou. Just say Lutheran East. That would help. Lutheran East won it 58-52. And for the D3 state title, 
it went Lutheran Eastway, 61-56. Now for Division 2, we pull up that beautiful regional tournament bracket. For the state semis, you had Chaminade Julienne, a team that knocked off Tippecanoe, a team I thought would get to the state championship game, but the Eagles handed the Red Devils their second loss in the year. They edged them out by three. And in the regional final, the Eagles flew over the Eagles of Bishop Watterson. CJ won it 66-46. What did that set up Chaminade Julian with? Well, a battle with Columbus St. Francis of Sales, a team that has pretty nice defense. In fact, the Eagles offense couldn't get anything going in the state semifinal game as the Stallions trampled over the Eagles 51-34. The other state semi game featured Lima Shawnee, the other local team, and they fell to Akron St. Vincent St. Mary's 71-42. The D2 state champion, St. Vincent St. Mary, by knocking off St. Francis of Sales 72-50. And now, Division 1. I can't wait to talk about this because of the fact that both teams in the state final were playing for their first ever title. Let me tell you about the local team, the Centerville Elks. You know how I've always talked about if you want to get to the state title game in D1, you got to get through the Molo Crusaders. Remember that? Well, Centerville did that. Elks 40, Molar 38. This is the regional final game. Centerville's got a really nice team. But to beat Bowler like that, that's outstanding. Bowler's a great team. I mean, got McDonald's All-American Logan Duncan on the Crusader squad. But Centerville, whew, the Elks were hard to stop. So Centerville made it from the regional final to UD Arena to take on the Mentor Cardinals. And the Elks would have their way with Mentor, 63 49 to set up the state final game. Who would Centerville take on? Would it be St. Ignatius or would it be Westerville Central or Columbus? Well, it would be the Warhawks of WC as they flew over St. Ignatius and the Wildcats 51-42. So this is the first ever state title game for both Westerville Central and Centerville. And it went the Elks way 43-42 for the first boys basketball state title in Centerville history. Congrats to the Elks. And I have to say, there was a great picture of sportsmanship as there was an Elks player hugging a Warhawks player after the final buzzer. That's what it's about. You know, this podcast talks a lot about sports. It's a sports podcast after all. If I talked about anything else, it'd be weird. But sportsmanship is one thing I love seeing. And that picture really warmed my heart. It was a tough loss for Westerville Central to fall by one. I mean, that's a tough team. You had 25-3 and Centerville going against 22-2 and Westerville Central. And Columbus is no slouch for hoops. And Centerville won. Not only knocking off the Titan of Cincinnati, they knocked off a giant of Columbus. And also Northeast Ohio and Mentor, too. That's huge. That's outstanding. So definitely congrats to Bakkins and congrats to Centerville on your boys' basketball state titles, thus effectively closing the book on winter sports. 
It's March Madness, baby. Sweet 16. Boom. Tough actin' to actin'. Wait, I got my references mixed up. So I want to talk about March Madness. You already know it's a rough time in Southwest Ohio. Only the Dayton Flyers got to a postseason tournament, and that was the NIT, and that was a very short-lived stay. More on that later. However, the last episode, I failed to talk about the women's basketball bracket, and I am very sorry for that. I don't have a good excuse, so I want to talk about women's basketball bracket. Who made it into the tournament? The Wright State University Raiders. They got the Horizon League tournament title away from IUPUI, and that set up a date in the big dance. Now, the Raiders the past few years have been very successful. They've gotten to tournaments. They've gotten to the big jams. They've gotten into the WNIT. They've gotten a chance to show off their teams in a postseason bracket. You know, when I was in college, it was always Green Bay, Milwaukee, maybe Butler, and UIC. Nowadays, it's Wright State, it's Green Bay, Milwaukee's looking to have a bit of a resurgence, and IUPUI. You know, I was asking this the other day, IUPUI women's sports, pretty fantastic. Men's sports, eh. But more on that on another episode. So, let's talk about the Wright State University Raiders. Led by Katrina Merriweather, who used to be an assistant coach at the University of Cincinnati. This was her fifth year at the helm. She's done a marvelous job. It started with Mike Bradbury, who... Is he still in New Mexico? Or did he take another job after that? I'm not sure. But Coach Merriweather took over and... From what I read, this is the only college that had an all-female staff as the coaching staff, which is awesome. I mean, you had Director of Operations Kim Demings, probably the greatest women's basketball player to walk on the campus from Richmond, Indiana, which I love that story. And also Abby Jump, I believe, was a former Raider. So it's excellent. It's excellent. I love getting a chance to PA the... Raiders women's basketball games. It was a little bit weird this year because no fans, but hey, I got to announce. I'm not complaining. So, Wright State, the 13-seeded Raiders, got a date with the four-seeded Razorbacks of Arkansas. Now, what people will probably tell you, the fight songs are the same. Okay, they are very similar. Not quite the same. There's a tiny bit of touch. Like, Arkansas's got more of a you know, I probably should have listened to it before I started this podcast. It's a little bit different, but it's, yeah, it's about the same. So, you know, there's that. And of course, there's the people saying right state wrong school because they think they're so hilarious, <laughs> so original, <laughs> so fresh, <laughs> so idiotic. Sorry, that came out of nowhere. No, it didn't. So the Wright State Raiders took on the Arkansas Razorbacks and a game that probably a lot of people had on their brackets as Arkansas moving through. Not today. Wright State 66, Arkansas 62. The Raiders did make it really close in the end. Arkansas did get the lead a couple of times, but the Raiders held on and hit their three throws to move on to round two. I want to talk about the box score because why wouldn't I want to? 
And this video is going to pop up and make everything go pear-shaped, isn't it? So let's turn that down. And, of course, NCAA.com doesn't really want to work for me, do they? So let's go to WrightStateRaiders.com, or WSURaiders.com. So, Angel Baker had herself a game. It was so impressive just to be able to watch and hear that the Raiders were taken to Arkansas. I was, I was so proud. I don't know if I could have, you know, predicted that. Now, yes, men's basketball have won a couple D1 postseason games. Not in the big dance, but what was that tournament? CBI, CIT, one of those two? NIT, they were close to beating Clemson and the former head coach Brad Burnell, but it didn't work out. Here's the box score. Hopefully it pulls up and good. It's on our website, so it will. This was played at the Frank Irwin Center in Austin, Texas. The Raiders got off to a 20-12 lead after the first quarter and held on for their 19th win of the season. Arkansas would fall to four points. Angel Baker played the entire game. 12 rebounds, 2 assists, 4 steals, 26 points. Breaking news, Angel Baker knows how to ball. 10-20 shooting, perfect 3-for-3 three three from beyond the arc. 3 of 5 from the three throws. 26 points to lead the Raiders scoring. Only eclipsed by Chelsea Dungy's 27 points for Arkansas. 37 minutes, 5 of 15 shooting, 3 of 6 from beyond the arc, and 14 of 18 from the three throw line. In fact, I think that's one of the key parts of having the backs come back against Wright State. And two technical fouls against Wright State, too. None on Arkansas. Okay, so the Raiders ended up shooting 40% on the game, 25 of 62. The best quarter for shooting was the second quarter, 47% rounded up. Only eclipsed by first quarter, 44.4%. Three throws, or yeah, three throws, we'll start with that. 10 of 15 went right state, and three pointers, 6 of 12, or an even 50%. Arkansas shot. 34% from the game, 17 of 50. Actually, the second and fourth quarters were the best for the Razorbacks. 41.67% in the second on 5 of 12, and 6 of 14 in the fourth for about 43% rounded up. 7 of 22 from beyond the arc, 21 of 28 from the three throw line. Rebounds, the Raiders pulled down 44 to Arkansas's 30, which that was a big stunner there. Most of the rebounds came from Angel Baker. Imani Jefferson had six, seven for Tyler Frierson, four for Destiny Jackson, Jada Wright with three, six for Shamari Hale, one for Diamond Stokes, and the Raiders also pulled down five additional ones via team for their win. I can't tell you how proud I was for Wright State knocking off Arkansas. I, I can't tell you. I mean, it means a lot to the campus. And there's a future episode where I'm going to be talking about the future of Wright's Day Athletics. Saying how competitive they are and everything, but that's in the future. First NCAA victory for Wright State. A lead for Wright State over 38 minutes. It's pretty much from the first quarter until about the fourth where Arkansas made it interesting. First NCAA win in program history. And that's the up to date 
with number five, Missouri State. The Bears were ranked number 20 in the country. And we're going to look at the recap. And the Raiders did give the Bears a good first half. Second half, uh, not so much. The final score in the second round, number five, Missouri State 64, number 13, Wright State 39. That ended the Raiders season, the historic season in the books. As the Raiders led 11-10 after one, fell to five points at the half. And then the rest of the way, the Bears scored 40 points to the Raiders, 20. To say that the offense went cold that second half, yeah. It, it was hard. It was, you know, I know Missouri State's a great women's basketball program. I know that. But at the same time, you know, you think, hey, why not us? Get against Stanford. But the second half was not meant to be as the Bears kicked it on again, outscoring the Raiders 40 to 20. And Missouri State outscored the Raiders 36 16 over the second and third to create that big gap. Let's look at the box score for that game. I thought I clicked the box score, but here it is. The box score. Gives the Raiders their eighth loss and ends the season at the UTSA Convoction Center in San Antonio, Texas. Angel Baker, remember, 26 points against Arkansas, 10 against the Bears. Off the bench, Jamari Hale had 10 points, four rebounds, four rebounds for Baker, too. Your leading rebounder was Imani Jefferson with six, three for Jada Roberson and Tyler Frierson. The Raiders pulled down 31 rebounds to the Bears' 47. As a team, the Bears shot 36.2% of the game. Best shooting quarter was in the third, where they went 7-16, the Bears did. Three-pointers, 8-16, and three throws, 14-17. For Wright State, the Raiders shot 53.3% for three throws in the game, and three-pointers, 3-18. of Ouch. So the perimeter game was definitely challenged by the Bears' defense. And as a team, the Raiders shot 27%, 14 of 52. Best shooting quarter was in the fourth, where the Raiders got 5 of 13, 38.46%. And that was a tough way to go. Again, tough Missouri State team. And it's tough to end a historic season like that, but I got nothing but pride for my Raiders on that. I'm not disappointed. I'm happy. And plus, we get another year of Angel Baker unless, you know, injury or transferring happens. But I don't see that happening. So we should have another great team next year at Wright State. Missouri State will get number one Stanford, a team that has blazed through number 16 Utah Valley, 87-44, and Oklahoma State, the 8th seeded Cowgirls, 73-62. That should be a good battle. UConn still alive. They got number five, Iowa. You have number two, Louisville over number six, Oregon next. The number one seed. Oh, I'm looking at the wrong side of the bracket. Duh. Sorry. You got Baylor, the number two seed there. Your other number one seed, NC State. It's got number four, Indiana. You got number one, South Carolina against number five, Georgia Tech. So we are in the, what is, would that be, Sweet 16? Sweet 16, baby! Nothing but nets. 
I wish I had something interesting to say, but let's talk about the 2021 NIT bracket. Now, yes, there's a saying, NIT, not invited tournament. Ha 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 ha. I've been really in a mocky mood lately. Just, I don't like it when people make stupid jokes like that. But remember, the NIT is the oldest bracket out there before the big dance was even a thing. So there you go. The Dayton Flyers got into the National Invitation Tournament. And the Flyers were the number four seed. And I'm certainly glad this bracket is hard to read. Because, let's face it, it's nice that I can't read the bracket. Actually, I can see it okay. The Dayton Flyers got the number one seed Memphis Tigers. They're led by Coach Penny Hardaway. And the Flyers fell to the Tigers. 71 to 60. I was going to say, you know what's nice about this bracket? There's not a score on it. So, you know, I can't really talk about it, can I? Actually, this is a lot better to see. Let's pull up a box score for the Dayton Flyers, shall we? Again, it's so weird. No no Cincinnati, no Xavier, no Nova Kentucky, no Miami, no Dayton in the big dance, no Wright State. And yes, that is a big topic. Wright State should have gotten invited to a tournament. Yes, I know. The way to stop that is don't blow a 24-point lead in the quarterfinals. You don't have to jab at me about that. I know that, and I'm still shocked about it. So the box score reads like this as the Flyers fell. That was a pretty close game until the end for Dayton. The Flyers actually led at the half 28-27 before Memphis outscored Dayton 44-32 in the second for the 11-point win for the Tigers. Your leading scorer in that game is Ibby Watson with 13. He also pulled down four rebounds and assisted three times with one block, one steal. Mustafa Amzil had 11. Your leading scorer actually was Elijah Weaver with 16 points. Jalen Crutcher had six. Six points the entire game, played 38 minutes. Not really in foul trouble, just picked up one, got three assists. Tough game for Crutcher, but Elijah Weaver with 16 points. A.B. Watson, 13. Mustafa Amzil with 11. And the Flyers just got seven players on the court against Memphis that entire time. UD shot 50% for the game. 12-25 in the first. And 13-25 in the second. Even Steven, just like that. There's a lot of 50% shooting games. I like that. It makes me not sound like an idiot. Three-pointers. The Flyers connected 7 of 21 for 33.3%. And three throws. A dismal percentage at 37.5. Three of eight. Yeah, three of eight. The Flyers only went to the line, what would that be, four times? Whereas Memphis... They shot 41.7% from three-throw line, which uh not great either. But the Tigers got 12 chances, made five of them. Three-pointers, Memphis went 38.5%, 10 of 26. And shooting-wise, Memphis shot worse than Dayton at 43.8%. This is a game that the lead changed 14 times. These teams scored, or these teams tied six times. And for the Tigers, they had five players come off the bench for 14 points, whereas the Flyers only got 18 points off the bench. Elijah Weaver, 
20 minutes, 16 points. Outside Elijah Weaver, Zimi Nwokjai with two points. Whereas off the bench, G-Day Jeffries with 10. Leading scorer was Landers Noli II with 21 points in 36 minutes. And a double-double for Lester Quinones, 15 points, 10 boards. 12 points, DeAndre Williams and Musa Sissi, 6 points, 3 boards in 15 minutes as a starter for Memphis. So your NIT tournament, Memphis has made it to the final four of the National Invitation Tournament. The next opponent for the Tigers, Colorado State. This is another number one seed from the first round. The Rams got past Buffalo 75-73, close game against the Bulls. Then got by NC State 65-61. Memphis got by Boise State 59-56, where the Broncos got by SMU 85-84. Other side of the bracket, St. Louis they fell in their first game in the NIT to Mississippi State, a 4-over-1 upset, 74-68. And immediately, I only think about the video of Travis Ford, head coach of the Billikens, tumbling down the hill. And still, Why would you upload that if you're the Billikens social media team? Why would you do that? It's just the coach tumbling down the hill. I don't... Never mind. Mississippi State also knocked off another A-10 team, the Richmond Spiders, 68-67. Close one over Chris Mooney's squad. Richmond defeated Toledo 76-66 to get to this, the quarterfinals. On the bottom side, another 4-over-1 upset. Louisiana Tech knocked off Old Miss 70-61. Then got by Western Kentucky 72-65. There is a third place game, so whoever drops Memphis, Colorado State, and Mississippi State, Louisiana Tech will play for third. That's March 28th for third place at three. And noon that same day on ESPN, the championship. Why would you have the championship before third place? I don't know. I don't make the rules. I just talk about them. There is another team that we need to talk about, too. The Dayton Flyers women's basketball team. They fell in the A-10 semifinals to VCU, a very close game. The Rams came up alive and took the A-10 Women's Basketball Tournament. The Flyers got an invite to the WNIT. Now, something about this year's WNIT is they had consolation games after the first round, which normally, that's not a thing. However... It was this time, and the Flyers got two postseason games. The women's basketball Flyers did. Let's look at that bracket to tell you about it. This was at Rockford, Illinois, so not too far from Dayton, Ohio, US of A. And your Dayton Flyers were matched up with Northern Iowa. The Flyers fell in that first game 72-56, and that dropped the Flyers down in the consolation bracket. If I can find where that is. The Flyers would then take on Bowling Green, who fell to Creighton in their first game, 72-65. to In case you're wondering, that next game, Darvin Illinois would edge out the Blue Jays 64-63, then knock off another A-10 foe, and Northern Iowa 
or St. Louis rather, 58-50 Northern Iowa wins over St. Louis. There we go. Sorry for that confusion. There is also a Horizon League team in the Milwaukee Panthers just dominating over Drake and the Bulldogs, 84-46. Here comes the joke that, oh, Drake played by himself. <laughs> Milwaukee would end up losing to St. Louis in the next game, 61-44. Then the Bilgins fell to Northern Iowa. So the recap... Looks like this. Cam Finley drained five three-pointers and closed with 23 points for UNI in the first round of the 2021 postseason WNIT. Dayton trailed by 10 points at halftime and got within seven points after three quarters. Akira Cook had 16 points, six boards. So that was the first round of the WNIT for the Flyers. The consolation game had the Dayton Flyers fall to Bowling Green 77-76 as we look at that box score. Pulling on up, and we'll tell you that at the UW Health Sports Factory in Watford, Illinois. Oh, it's a factory now. The Flyers got off to a great start, a 24-17 lead after one quarter, but then the Falcons outscored the Flyers in the second and third, 22-15, 25-18, or Dayton got... A 19-13 winning in the fourth quarter to fall by one. For your Flyers, Aaron Whalen led the way. Great score for UD. 28 points. Did foul the game. And also pulled down two rebounds. 10 of 18 shooting. 5 of 9 from beyond the arc. 28 points to lead the flying crew. 18 points. 10 in Magasa inside the paint. A double-double for the freshman. With 10 boards. Also five blocks and four steals. Quite a game for Magasa. Arian Bradshaw, the point guard, 11 points, six boards. Six points, 10 boards. Kyla Whitehead and Jan Giacconi, who is normally known as a scoring threat, along with the Flyers, held to three points in 24 minutes. Flyers pulled down 41 rebounds, shot 46.7% on the game, 33%, excuse me, 33.3% from beyond the arc. And shot from the charity stripe, 13 of 18, for 72.2%. Bowling Green, 40.3 on the game, 27 of 67. Falcons, about 41% from beyond the arc and 70% from the three-throw line. Falcons were serviced by Olivia Trice, coming off the bench with 17 points. Nyla Hampton, 16 points to lead the starters, 11 points. Alyssa Britt, and 11 boards to lead the Falcons crew, Kenzie Lewis. In 25 minutes. That ended the postseason run for the Dayton Flyers. Great season. Just 0-2 in the WNIT. And a tough loss in the semis to number 5 VCU 56-50. And that covers the basis of local teams in March Madness. You can make your own Dick Vitale impressions here. I'll wait. Last up today, the Cincinnati Reds in spring training 2K21. It's been amazing that I haven't been able to talk about spring training yet. For that, I apologize. But with the season starting in <clears throat> six days, it's time to talk Cincinnati Reds baseball. Now, 
there's a lot of people saying the Reds aren't going to do so hot in the NL Central this year. I disagree. I think the Reds can compete. Will they win it? Well, I would have said yes before St. Louis got Nolan Arendo from the Colorado Rockies. I still can't believe the Rockies led one of their faces of the franchise just walk for a mere pittance. By walk, I mean trade, but you get what I'm saying. So, one of the big losses happened in the starting rotation with Trevor Bauer defecting to the Dodgers of Los Angeles, of Los Angeles, for a very big contract, which is higher than the spending of the Cleveland Indians, the Pittsburgh Pirates, and the Baltimore Orioles. Yes, it's that huge, and Cincinnati was never going to be able to afford that, which I'm fine with. I made peace with that. I mean, it would have been nice if Bauer stuck around, but he wanted money. Which, who doesn't want money? It makes the world go round, after all. So spring training, of course, as you know, is not really you know about wins and losses. I mean, you don't get a trophy for winning spring training! Maybe you do, but it's not the trophy you want. Remember, what was it, 2006, where the Reds were in first place throughout spring training in the Grapefruit League? And then failed to make a playoff spot last few weeks of the season. Yeah, for me, it's all about regular season. And spring training is about getting to form. Finding out who's going to be part of your team. If your prospects are ready for game time. Or if they need to cook a little bit longer in minor league. Which is starting a month later. So, there's that. So, I looked on some information. Haven't really seen any stats yet from spring training to tell you about. Maybe Reds.com has it, but this is from the Cincinnati Inquirer, Charlie Goldsmith, and this is on MSN. As the Reds hitters are doing quite well, actually. Hitting as well as any other team in spring training, which is a promising thing. The Reds need to hit. In other news, water is wet. But you look at last year, just the team that the Reds assembled in that offseason, only for it to fizzle out like it did. The Reds barely made the playoffs and then got shut out by Atlanta twice. But I'm talking about that. What I'm talking about is the Reds do have a potent team. Do I think they can topple St. Louis? They better play their A game against the Cardinals, but possible. I think the Cardinals have a great third baseman Milan Arando Arenado, excuse me. I don't know why I kept messing up that name but but yeah, that was a big trade. I still can't believe Colorado let him go but so the Reds right now, some of their star hitters, it's been first baseman Joey Votto. He's hit 444 thus far. His approach has been different. I think he's going back to his old style of hitting. And then here came the positive COVID test. Great. Before he left camp, Joey Votto was delivering on his goal to hit with more power with most of the hits coming from hard hit balls to the outfield, including a double that landed behind the center fielder. During the first week of spring training, David Bell, the manager, noted how Votto came out swinging with a more aggressive approach at the plate it was used to seeing, and it worked well early on. Also, second base, Jonathan India. 
This is a prospect that I can't wait to see in a Reds jersey. Do I think he's ready? I don't know, honestly. He might be, but India's hitting 344 in spring training. He currently ranks sixth in the Cactus League in batting average among qualified hitters, third in on-base percentage, seventh in OPS. So India might be making a push for Cincinnati's roster, which I don't mind one bit. And he's got the opportunity to start every day at second base, which might be a good sign. Most of the Reds' best contact hitters are left-handed. He's been at his best, Jonathan India, against left-handed pitching and has a chance to continue to rise up in the batting order during the season. You know who else has improved? Shortstop Eugenio Suarez. Yes, I said shortstop, not third. Yes, that whole shortstop soap opera is still going on. And they finally realized, oh, hey, Suarez was a shortstop before he moved to third. Duh. But Suarez is hitting 310. Yeah, that's promising. Very rough year last year for Suarez. But since moving to shortstop from third, two doubles, three RBIs in four games, and an RBI double off the outfield wall against Rookie of the Year Devin Williams of Milwaukee. Now, in terms of players that aren't hitting so well, Mike Moustakas, 194 at third base. 25th on the team in batting average, 25th in OPS, 6 for 31 this spring with two extra base hits. Normally, has a great spring training. Has normally been a great spring training player. Between 2013 and 2019, a 330 batting average with an OPS over 900, six different seasons, but also struggled last season. He's four for 10, Mustakas is against left handed pitchers with three RBIs. And last season, hit 214 with seven RBIs and 42 at bats. So is it the approach from Alan Zinter that's messing Mustakas up? Is it just Mike Mustakas is having a rough start? I don't know. It could be a mixture of both. It could be the move to third, because remember, Mustakas normally played second, but if Jonathan India is making the team, which I thought India was a third baseman by trade. That's what he was with the Dayton Dragons. But again, that doesn't mean squad. So that'll be interesting to see. Here's some other hitters that will make you smile. Nick Castellanos, 414 batting average. Nick Senzel, 344. And Jesse Winker, 259. That's probably going to be your outfield core, those three, with um, Shogo Akiyama sidelined. I can't believe I forgot his name in the original take. How stupid am I? The answer is I'm not. I see a lot of athletes, and I get confused a lot of times. So going back to the outfielders, Castellanos, 12 hits in his last 18 at-bats with four extra basers. Sinzel has at least one hit in his last six games, including a three-hit night against San Francisco. And Winker elevated his batting average from a cold 188 to 259 over the last week while having a double, triple, and six RBI in five games. Your catching tandem looks like it's Tucker Barnhart and Tyler Stevenson, which is nice to see Tyler Stevenson ready for the big show. Barnhart, 148, Stevenson, 231. Early in spring training, Barnhart was one of 
the only major league hitters playing in an inter-squad B game. He was there to get more at-bats against left-handers, look, working to be more consistent against lefties. Barnhart is 3 of 19 against right-handed pitchers and just six at-bats against lefties. Stevenson's a right-handed hitter who's historically been better against lefties. He's 4 for 14 with three walks and three RBIs against righties. He hasn't shown his power yet, but the rookie catcher has good at-bats against quality pitchers. That's promising. I like that. So, that's some of your hitters in spring training. And right now, big thing is, do we see, you know, do we see Tyler Stevenson in the big crew? If not, then who takes his place? I'd say it is Stevenson, since you don't have Kirk Casale anymore. That, uh, was it a release? I think it was a release that kind of opened the door for him. So there you go. Let's look. There we go. Hey, I found stats after all. Isn't that swell? Let's go batting average. So far, Joey Votto has had the highest batting average in four games, 444. Max Schrock, a third baseman, 440 in 12 games for Cincinnati. Then you got Nick Cassianos, Mark Payton in the mix, too, 357. Alfredo Rodriguez, 353. Jeff Hoffman, a pitcher, batting 333 as well. In just two games, though, and three at-bats still. Okay. India, 333. Senzel, 324. Farmer, 310. Farmer also named probably one of these starting shortstops. Rocky Gale, a catcher, 308. Then you got Alex Blandino. Remember him, Reds fans? I do. He's batting 306. Couple years, it's been rough for Alex Blandino with the injuries, but maybe he'll come back. I don't know. You got former Cleveland Indian Tyler Naquin, 297 batting average, looking to put a little bit rougher on Bell, saying, hey, I belong in this Reds roster. Put me on. You got Scott Heineman with 303 batting average. Nicky Delmonico, who might be the backup to Joey Votto, 292 batting average. Aristides Aquino, 281. D. Strange Gordon. When did D. Gordon name himself D. Strange Gordon? When did that happen? He might be a candidate for shortstop, too. He's batting 281, looking to get his career on track. Remember, he won a couple of golden gloves as well. They got Eugenio Suarez, 278. Davey Grulon, which he's listed as an X. Does that mean he's not on the team or he got sent to minor league? Well, he's batting 273. Tyler Stevenson, 265. Mike Freeman, another pickup from the Cleveland Indians. Great minor leaguer. He was batting 250. Alejo Lopez, 250. Chucky Robinson, 250. Errol Robinson, a DH, 250. Jesse Winker, 242. Kyle Holder, 219. And there's more of this, but we're not going to talk about that because that's just me rattling off stats, and that's not as fun. And there is only two pit. There we go. Luis Tastillo, yet to give up a run in five innings. He's 1-0. Colson Fulmer, one game, one inning, no runs, one strikeout. He's looking to make the Major League roster for a bullpen help. Then you have Amir Garrett, two games, no runs, two innings, six strikeouts, strong. 
Vladimir Gutierrez, seven innings pitch, one loss, five games, one start, one run. It was not earned. And seven innings, 11 strikeouts for Gutierrez. So he's promising. Lion Richardson, very young kid, but I think he's, what, 20 now? Let's find out together. But Lion Richardson came from the Dragons in 2019, and he had a rough season. But, yeah, born in 2000, so he'd be 21. My apologies. Right now, one win, one game, one inning, two Ks. That's impressive. So there is promise here for Cincinnati. There is promise, and I do like what I see. So, opening day next week. I can't wait to see the Reds. It's going to be weird saying, hey, you can watch them on Bally Sports Ohio, but that's neither here nor there. Which, by the way, that's happening in five days. Nothing else will change. New graphics package. No Fox Sports, though. No Fox Sports regions. That's so weird. And it's Bally's the casinos, not Bally Total Fitness. Well, it's the same logo, so it's the same company and everything. So, yeah, Reds home opener Thursday against St. Louis 410. Saturday against the Cardinals 410. Kids opening day. And then Sunday to wrap up the three-game series at 110 against St. Louis. Then the Pittsburgh Pirates are in town. 640 on Monday and Tuesday and 1235 Wednesday. The Reds are allowing fans in the stands along with the Indians. In fact, it's a state of Ohio thing, but not a lot. So you better get tickets. You better get tickets quick. By the way, the Reds will head out west against Arizona and San Francisco after the six-game homestand, and then have another six-game homestand. Finally, three home games against the Cleveland Indians. Now that two-and-two crap. Have six games. Cleveland will be at Cincinnati, and then Arizona makes the trip April 20th, 21st, 22nd. The Ohio Cup is 16th, 17th, 18th. And then the Reds go on the road at St. Louis, then Los Angeles Dodgers of Los Angeles. And that is episode 207. We talk about local sports, as we always do here on this podcast. And like I said, next episode, I'm talking about something very near and dear to me. It'll be a different format. It will be about the future of Wright State Athletics. And I hope you will join me for that podcast episode. Tell your friends, the only source of local sports is on this podcast, not on Dayton Radio. Talk to you again for episode 208 of the Cincinnati and Dayton Sports Podcast, SindayPod.com.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Cincinnati and Dayton Sports Podcast with Lee W. Mowen. Be sure and bookmark SindayPod.com, the official website of the local Sunday Sports Podcast. From there, you can find your favorite way of listening to future episodes on platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Pandora, Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, and more. You can also find the Redbubble and Tee Public shops there too, where all podcast merchandise purchases go to help the podcaster. Follow on social media at SindayPod and the Lead W Mowen on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. This closing theme was created with the Splash app. This is Lee W. Mowen saying thank you again for listening, and we'll talk more local Cincinnati and Dayton, Ohio sports next time. Music